Well, whenever you study a, a book of the Bible, it's always a good idea to have a, a general flow of the book even before you begin to, to read it. Uh, just, just to get an idea of what, what's taking place. Like, like, for instance, in my Bible reading, I um, came across this week the book of Esther, along with about a dozen of you who are reading the Bible with the same schedule with Avon and I uh, this year. And, and just thinking about Esther and how, how helpful it is just to kind of know the picture of, of the, the fact that the king had problems with his wife and cast her out and then got a new wife, Esther, who was a Jew, in the midst of a time in which Israel, or the, the Jews were being persecuted and, and potentially being extinguished. And yet, at that time, Esther came for such a time as that, so as to then save the Jews. And to have that big picture in mind is just helpful. It's a, it's a book about God's sovereignty in saving the Jews from extinction. And, and it's helpful, any book of the Bible that you read. So whether it's Genesis, and just understanding that's the beginning of of the world and the beginning of the nation of Israel and the calling of Abraham. Just, it's a gen, it's new beginnings or Exodus is when, when God brought Israel out of slavery or Leviticus. It's the, it's the laws of the Levites. And you go on book by book by book. Joshua, the conquest of the land or, or first Samuel is about Saul and second Samuel is about David and, and first King is about, um, Solomon and, and then the divided kingdom. And just to have a picture, a broad picture of what's happening in, in all those books is super helpful. Because when you find yourself, maybe say, deep in Jeremiah, as uh, we began our service this morning, reading from Jeremiah, re- realize that Jeremiah prophesied right before their nation was about to be destroyed by Babylon. And, and even through that time, it just helps you to understand what's said in context. Uh, or the Gospels, to understand that they'll speak about the life of Jesus. Some from his birth to his early ministry, his conflict with the Pharisees, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Or the book of Acts tells the divinely inspired story of the uh, history of the early church. It's helpful to know the book of Revelation is is written to persecuted believers primarily just to help them endure because it says it's going to get better in the end because Jesus is coming to right all wrongs that they're facing. So it's helpful to get a good perspective of of an overflow of, of a book. So I want you to think this morning about the book of Psalms. And I believe, I think this, this is true as well, is it's good to have an overview of the book of Psalms to, to understand right, the flow of it. But Psalms is unique because it's not just a single writer with a single narrative over the entire book. Because the Psalms are written by at least six authors. David wrote at least half of the Psalms, 75 we know for sure, probably more, but he didn't write all of them. Uh, Asaph wrote a bunch, 12 of them, in fact. The, the sons of Korah uh, wrote 11 of them. Um, Heman was was one of those, that Ezraite probably, perhaps. Um, Ethan was Ezraite. He wrote Psalm 89. He wrote one as well. Moses even appears. What Psalm did Moses write? Psalm, Psalm 90. Solomon wrote a couple. Which ones did Solomon write? Yeah, that's not, yeah. Which Psalms did he write? <laughs> not sure if you know that. Maybe not. Psalm 72 and Psalm 127, it says right at the top, Psalms of Solomon. There are 48 Psalms that are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them <clears throat> and really presents an interesting thought about the flow of the book of Psalms because they're individual writers. Like they did not have a big overarching intent of the book of Psalms and yet somebody arranged them. And I happen to believe that that it was divinely inspired, how they are arranged. They're arranged in the English Bible just like they are arranged in the Hebrew Bible. 
And uh, in fact, if you look at the Psalms, they're arranged into five books. I'm not sure if you know that. The first book is the first 41 Psalms. And then from 42 to 72, there's another book. And then 73 to 89 is another book. And from 90 to 106, there's another book. And from 107 to 150, like, so five different books. And somebody put them together with a design in mind just to flow the book of the Psalms. And I'm sure that each psalm was inspired, God an idea, where, where it was going to go in the Psalter as they were arranged together. And so I was thinking about this, the flow of the book of Psalms. I, I think it's much like devotional books. Like, I have a, a devotional book on my shelf. Um, Nancy Guthrie wrote it. It's a, it's a great book. It's uh, 22 Readings for Advent. Um, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And it's written by 22 different authors. Some are alive, some are dead, some she just uh, cut out of their writings to put here in, in this book. And uh, she's, she's placed these um, articles in here, these 22 different little uh, readings for Advent, so as to, like, prepare somebody for Christmas. And so she put them together. Um, the first one or two are talking about the word in eternity past. And then it continues the Mary's encounter with Gabriel. And then an insight on, on Joseph, and then that night in which Jesus was born, and the, and the shepherds, and the magi who came, and then afterwards, even Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sins, and the hope that, of life that, that Christ gives. So she gets to the gospel even here. But it, each individual writer didn't have really a flow, but Nancy Guthrie put them all together for a nice flow. Now, she also wrote um, another book called Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross, where this is the same idea, not a Christmas devotional, but an Easter devotional. And it has 25 different readings by 25 different authors, some of them alive or some of them dead. And the idea of the book is to lead up to Easter. And so even here, right, beginning with the ministry of Jesus, the events of leading up to going to Jerusalem, were then prayed in Gethsemane and the betrayal and the trial and the horrors of the cross and what he spoke from the cross. And then his death and his burial. But then also his resurrection and the power then in our lives as we await his coming. Even one chapter in here is written by Johnny Erickson Tata. She reflects upon the coming of Jesus and just so she'll get a new body. She's been in a wheelchair for 50 years. And, and I've used both these books devotionally just leading up to Christmas and leading up to Easter. Just, 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 just to put my heart a right as I think about these things. And so likewise, the book of Psalms is, uh, was put together by someone. We don't know how he put together, or her even. We don't know how they were put together. Um, but somehow they're arranged for us. And I do think that there is some sense of a natural flow in the book of Psalms. In fact, I just looked um, yesterday, and O. Palmer Robinson wrote a book called The Flow of the Psalms in which he gets into this, trying to figure out how all the, the Psalms go together. And he's got some so I, so I looked online, just even a, a technical way in which he thought this book talks about this and this book talks about that. But, but I think just even in the broadest general way, there's a theme for the Psalms. And, and, and I think it begins, the first two Psalms speak about blessing. Remember Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Just the blessing of the one who, who meditates on God's word. And then Psalm 2 even speaks about the blessing of the one who bows down and worships and kisses the Son of God. And then from there we get into a lot of David's troubles and trials as he deals with uh, 
um, running from Saul and becoming a king and having difficulties. And so it sort of, sort of goes down in terms of having difficulties, and it reaches the bottom pit. I think Psalm 77, right in the middle of that psalm, 7, 8, and 9, are like the, the lowest that the psalms get when the psalmist says this, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Like it starts off this great blessing about those following God, and yet reaches the point of despair. Even Psalm 77, verse 8, has the steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Like this, this chesed love that God has, this steadfast, loyal love, has that stopped, the psalmist says? And then verse 9, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? So basically, has God like forgotten everything who he is? Has he forgotten that he's a gracious God because things are so bad and in the depths? It's a low point. But after that, then the the Psalms begin to climb up, right? Even the Psalms of Ascent are on the back end of the Psalms as they think about ascending up into Jerusalem to worship until the end when you get these doxology of praise, the five Psalms at the end of the Psalter, which call us to praise the Lord. And we've been looking at these five Psalms, the climax of the Psalms these these past weeks. Uh, these past five weeks this is our fifth one, and, and and the idea is even of the Psalms. If you look at the whole the whole flow of it, e- even if life is difficult, and you're facing pressures in life, and, and as you try hard to wade your th- way through the difficulties of life, even reaching a point like Psalm seventy-seven, God, have you forgotten to be gracious? Has your steadfast love ceased? It's a kind of an oxymoron. Steadfast love will continue, but has that love ceased? And when you think that God has forgotten you, and you think that God has forgotten to be gracious, yet even through all that trials, the psalm will take us out to praise the Lord in the end. And he's working through our trials. Someday to bring glory to himself, that we might be with him forever. And the the psalms really reminds us of the struggle. So if you tried to graph the the book of Psalms, I think you might put it something like this. It's like an inverse bell curve a little bit. Like like one and two begin high, and then it swoops down. and then That's like the broadest the broadest outline of Psalms. And yet what's interesting is, is even within each of these books of the Psalms, like I, I could have done this as well, is that we start from Psalm 1, and then maybe we go a little bit down, and then at the end of, of Psalm 41, listen to what it says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. So even in the midst of difficulties and trials that David's going through, still there's this praise at the end of Psalm 41 to close off the first book. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And, and book two also ends with a, an anthem of praise. In Psalm 72, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Here's a question for you. How do you think book three ends in Psalm 89? It ends with a a hymn of praise, right? Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And how do you think book four ends? It ends with praise. Psalm 106, verse 48. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. And so even in these books where you, you kind of get to these, these dips and these praises kind of finishing. And appropriately, book five ends, not with just a verse of praise, not with two verses of praise, not with five verses of praise, with five psalms of praise. And I do think that's how all these Alleluia psalms fit in to the flow of the Psalter. And each of them have their own particular slant. We see Psalm 146 calls us to resolve to praise the Lord. 
praise the Lord, O my soul, is how it begins. Psalm 147 tells how fitting it is to praise the Lord in light of who God is. It's apt and appropriate for us to praise the Lord. Psalm 148 tells us it's an exhaustive call for all created order to praise the Lord. Things in heaven, things upon the earth, everything. The creation even. And Psalm 149 is a call to praise the Lord with joy. And this morning then, it's almost as if we have a crescendo of praise to praise the Lord. In fact, you can open your Bibles right now to Psalm 150 if you aren't there. Um, we're going to read this. It is six verses long. And in these six verses, there are 13 times in which it commands us to praise the Lord. And it's interesting, 13 times. That's more than Psalm 149 and 148, 147, 146. In fact, Yvonne even pointed this out to me, is that she was listening to someone. Psalm 146 has five calls to praise. And Psalm 147 has six calls to praise. And Psalm 148 has 10 calls to praise. And Psalm 149, 11. And here we are, 13. It's almost as if these psalms also, in number of praise to God, are crescendoing. And it's almost as if like that, like fireworks. You know how fireworks go? Is that especially that finale at the end when everything's booming and everything's going and just, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's what's happening in Psalm 150. So listen to it. These 13 commands, you can count them on your fingers and then add another one, right? If you want to count them, that's fine. Six verses, 13 commands. Here we go. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, my hope throughout this series is that we would become aware of God's call upon our life to praise Him anew and afresh in a greater and deeper way. You know, especially in light of these psalms, especially in light of how many psalms go through the hardships of life. And, and, and through the psalms, it's almost as if God is telling us, you know, through everything, yet ultimately you need to praise the Lord. Through all your hardships, through all your trials, through all your valleys, ultimately you, you need to resolve to praise the Lord. Because... The Psalms deal with life as cruel and harsh as it is. And that's why even these Psalms written thousands of years ago, they resonate with us so much. Because they catch us in in our humanness, in our difficulty, and in our trials. Yet through it all, the Psalms calls us to praise the Lord because He is indeed worthy of our praise. What comes loud and through clear in this last of the Psalms is just how to praise. It tells us where we should praise. It tells us why we should praise. It tells us how we should praise. And it tells who should praise the Lord. My message this morning is let everyone praise the Lord. All right, so my first point this morning is where? Where should we praise the Lord? Verse 1 says this. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. That's praise Him on the earth. In the sanctuary, praise Him in His mighty heavens, that's in heavens, and at first blush you might be thinking that simply means that we should praise God everywhere, right? That, that He should be praised at home and, and at work, or He should be praised outside and inside, whether in your car or on your bike, and, and we even saw that last week where it said you should praise the Lord on your beds, verse 5, let the godly exult in glory, let them sing for joy on their beds, right? But if you think about it a little bit, that was more Psalm 148. This is, this is a little bit different in Psalm 150. 
because when referring to the earth, the, the, the psalmist doesn't say praise the Lord everywhere. The psalmist says praise him in his sanctuary. Now, for the original hearers, that would have meant in the temple. It would have meant in the, the holy place. It, it, maybe it meant in the assembly of the synagogue. Uh, wherever the crowd of worship gathers together, um, for us, it means Sunday morning. It means when we gather here, right, in the sanctuary, in the auditorium, when we gather with the assembly. And, and there's a sense, catch this, where the Lord particularly loves the praise of an assembled people. Psalm 87, verse 2 says this, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than the dwelling places of Jacob. So where did Jacob dwell? Well, he dwelt in all the land of, of Canaan, Palestine, that God had given to them, just all over, from the north where Dan in the north to Simeon in the south, like, like all over. But there's, there's something more about the gates of Zion, and Zion would be the, the holy hill, the holy mountain where the, the temple was, Mount Moriah. And, and God, he says, he loves Zion more than the dwellings of Jacob. And, and I think the idea is that when God looks down upon Israel, he loved the people, certainly. He loved their dwelling places. But there's a special place in his heart that he, he loved the gates of Zion, the inner city of Jerusalem, where his people would come and worship him in a way that was special, that was greater than in the other ways. Now, certainly God wants to be play, praised everywhere, but there are certain places, particularly in the gathering and the assembly, that he particularly delights in. And the people of God have a similar desire. Psalm 84, verse 10. Maybe you know this. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Right? A day with your people in church is better than a thousand outside of the church. Sunday is a day I long for. I look forward to this day. That's what the psalmist is saying. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be right here with God's people than to be out there. And so when you think about church and Sunday, the, the attitude I often think about is uh, spending a day at the lake. I would say ocean, but ocean is too windy and too harsh, and golfing gives me headaches with all the brightness. I like the lake. Avon likes the ocean with the crashing waves and with the, the wind and the seeing as far as you can on the horizon. I like the, the Wisconsin lake where the water goes lap, 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 and there's trees all around. I love a day at the lake. And so likewise, you should long to church to be like your day at the lake. There's the inner heart and the desire that, that you would rather be a day in your courts than the thousands elsewhere. And if that's your heart and that's your attitude, boy, there are times when you just can't make it to church, right? There are times where you can't be in the assembly, but what, what happens to you? Are you like, you're like, oh man, I, I, I want to go to the lake. All right, I want to go to the church where I get refreshed. That's the hard attitude of the, the psalmist that says, I'd rather be here than thousands elsewhere. It's not that you have to come here. Oh, I got to go to church. Oh, I got to fulfill my duty. It's not all about that. It's about being where God is, finding pleasure in there. God loves that place. The people of God loves that place. And if we can't be with God's people, worshiping together, there there might likewise be a a sorrow of your soul. In in Psalm 42, the psalmist was in depression. And then that's why he said, why are you in despair, O my soul? And he talked to himself. He said, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. So here he was. His problem was that he was away from the people of God. Something had kept him from the sanctuary, from the assembly. And, and he remembered the happy days when he would go with the throng 
in procession to the house of God, when he would go with glad shouts and songs of praise, when the multitude were there keeping his festival, and he was longing for those times, yet in his anguish he was away. And so he was in despair. And I think that we faced a similar thing during the days of COVID when we were forced to separate. We were forced to be away from the people of God. Do you remember the first time you gathered back with people after having been away for whatever it was, weeks or months? Maybe some sense of years. Was it great to be in the church? I remember it's interesting when, when we were doing this COVID hit, we were on sabbatical. We were in California that just locked down almost everything and just um, more than Illinois. Okay, if you can believe that. It was more locked down than, than Illinois and the church just could not get together. And, and while I was in California on, on sabbatical, I watched more church than I ever would have been at church. I, I mean, we went on sabbatical longing to be, hey, we can just be part of a church, just sit in the uh, auditorium, sit in the audience and be involved in Sunday school class and be involved in the home Bible study on Wednesday night or Friday nights or whatever. And but instead, we, we just watched remotely. And I would typically watch three services at home easy, like kind of just watching through all the services, taking all that in. And heard, right, heard some great things, you know, heard some, watched some great preachers. Um, but it's interesting that the, the service that impacted me the most was the first time I was indoors at a church, probably the worst sermon I heard all summer long. But, but it was with God's people. And there was something there that invigorated me far more than just watching on a screen. And I'm sure maybe you experienced that. It's maybe your home or maybe you're, you're online right now. Um, I don't know. There's just something you can watch. Boy, and I say, if, you, if you're, why not watch someone who's a much better preacher than I am? <laughs> why not? Because you're missing the experience. The one thing that I can give that a lot of celebrity pastors with great gifts cannot give, they can't give you their love. I can give you my love. I can give you a personal experience. I can pray for you. I can put my arm around you. I can cry with you. I can rejoice with you. I can visit with you in the hospital. I can be at your friend's house. I, I, I can do those things. But it was just a, a desire. And we kind of we felt that a little bit as we were apart from that. But where to praise the Lord in the sanctuary is where we ought to praise the Lord. Well, why ought we ought to praise the Lord? That's verse 2. Right? Where the first one was the word in. This is the word for. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Right? The idea is the same, right? Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him for His excellent greatness. Now, often the question is asked, why should we praise God? Two answers, right? Because of who He is and because of what He does. That's just a real simple answer. I'm not sure if that's a catechism from someplace. I'm not sure, but it's a good answer. Why should we praise God? Because of who He is and because of what, what He does. And uh, in fact, that's a, we, we saw that last week. Praise the Lord because of who God is. Psalm 149, verse 2. Let Israel be glad in His Maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their King. That God's a Creator worthy of praise. He's their King who rules over them. He is worthy of praise. And to this you could add many more titles. God is our, our Savior. He's worthy of praise. He's our rock and He's our fortress. He is worthy of all praise. Okay, help me now. God is holy. He is worthy of all praise. God is all-powerful. He is... Worthy of all praise. God is all-knowing. He is worthy of all praise. God is omnipresent. He is worthy of all praise. Just who He is is an opportunity to praise the Lord. And also, God is to be worshipped for what He has done. Think about biblical history, whether creating the world, He's our maker, or even choosing Abraham 
from Ur of the Chaldeans, out of all the people on the face of the earth, choosing Abraham to be the father of faith of the Jewish people, and then we are of the faith of Abraham. So we slide in there as well. But God redeemed Israel from slavery, from difficult circumstances. God brought, brought them out of that to be a free people. God gave Israel a king to, to rule them. God brought Israel back into the land after a time of, of exile in Babylon. He, he came in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, to show us how to live. He died on the cross for our sins. He, he will come again to give us new bodies, sinless by, bodies. Indeed, God is to be worshipped for what He has done. And here in Psalm 150, verse 2, we see both these reasons. God is worshipped because of who He is and what He's done. Right? Praise Him for His mighty deeds. That's what He does. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. That's who He is. In fact, that's why we come to the sanctuary week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, is to worship the Lord because He's worthy of our praise. His excellent greatness is worthy of our praise. And because He's done great things, He's done mighty deeds. And see, we don't worship the Lord just because. We don't worship the Lord, right, with hopes that if we do this for Him, then He's going to do something for us. No, we do this for Him because of everything that He is and what He did to us, for us. Right? We worship the Lord because the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. We worship the Lord because His steadfast love endures forever. That's why Psalm 77 was so devastating, because the psalmist felt that His steadfast love wasn't enduring forever. But it does. And, and, and we come and we praise Him because He loved us first. Right? We love Him because He loved us first. Church family, this is why we worship the Lord. Because He's been kind to us in Jesus Christ. Listen, think about it. If you're a believer in Christ, what an amazing thing it is that God has done for us. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. He, he, he did that so he might save us by his grace. So it's none of us. Before the foundation were, before we've done good or bad. Just like Jacob over Esau. God, God chose us in him. So we were saved by grace, not apart, not from our works. By dying upon the cross then for our sins, he wiped everything clean. He wiped it all away. And, and, and if you believe in, tri, in Christ, right, you're reconciled to God. Not because of your works, but because of his mercy. Indeed, because of Jesus, listen, we, we face no condemnation. Our sin debt is paid and is paid in full. God's not going to find some sin bill lying around later that he's going to bring up. If there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, God's wrath has been fully and completely satisfied. So God does for us. He's brought us out of the kingdom of darkness, brought us into his kingdom of his son, and he's promised to return to bring us safely into heaven where we can fellowship with the Lord forever, where he will be our God and we will be his children. Fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that Jesus Christ inherits, we are fellow heirs with him, like we are brothers and sisters with Jesus inheriting the kingdom as well. Is that, is that reason to praise God? Because what he has done for us. See, when, when we believe, right, we're no longer condemned in our sin, but we are kept secure in the love of Christ that he has for us. Romans 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. That's why we praise the Lord. That's why we praise him as new covenant believers, because in him he's abounded with blessings upon us. Well, let's go on. How? This is verses 3 through 5, and we've already had a living illustration of this, so we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. But how are we to praise the Lord? 
Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. And, and the emphasis here is upon music and, and instruments. In, in fact, it, it is appropriate as we gather together, oftentimes the, the focus of worship is song. It's when we can sing doctrine together, when we can sing words of affirmation together, and, and all of us in harmony, the way to do that is with song, with words you repeat over and over again, with words that you commit to memory. And I, I hope you try to commit some of the songs to memory. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread His flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. And all the stars and hearts obey. I forget exactly what it is. But at least it's it's there, right? If, Ryan, you were singing it, I I would get the whole thing. And I sang it from memory just because it's there and because songs we sing often should be sung from memory. Music is a way of stirring us also, right, in, a, in, in our praise of God like nothing else. I want you to picture the rock concert, totally secular, okay? I want you to picture the rock concert and all the thousands of, of crowd, the, the, the people there, right, just moving and dancing, right? And there, there's a way that music can just move us and stir us. Now, they, of course, are worshiping the, the secular people up front, probably wicked, it's, it's all get out, right? But that's a picture of worship. But our worship not, ought to be not people on the stage, but ought to be directed up to the Lord God in heaven. As music stirs us in a way that's unique to praise the Lord. And that's with, with instruments, as we're turned to God. And in verses 3 through 5, we see all types of instruments. We see the trumpet. Okay, typically, we think of a trumpet. We think of a, a three-valve deal. Um, but back then, this is probably a trumpet, probably just a, a long blast, more like our, our bugle. Like we can do that, and they could do that with a, a, a large trumpet, as one mentioned in, in verse three. In verse three, we we play. We see the lute, which is like a a guitar. It had some of them had even ten strings on them, maybe strummed a, a little bit like that. In, in verse three, we see the harp. Um, you know, this is what we've seen of ancient harps. You know, maybe a stringed instrument, more that's plucked, more that's calming and soothing. And in um, verse 4, we see the, the tambourine and the dance. In fact, tambourine and dance often go together. In fact, often in Scripture, it is with the, the women who are, who are dancing. And I'm not sure why that is, but it's the, the women in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, when the, the horse and the rider came into the sea after the, the Red Sea, when Israel followed along and they followed after him when they're they were sunk in the sea. It says in, in Exodus 15, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider He has thrown into the sea. And so just the, the dancing with tambourines, it's particularly women, I, I'm not sure. In verse 3, we see the harp. Um, Right, another stringed instrument. In verse four, we see, uh, I'm sorry, tambourine. And, and verse four, we see the strings and pipe. Now, strings was just again like the the, the lyre there, or maybe the um, the other things, the lute, I guess. Just the the stringed instruments. 
but here the pipe, you know, I've heard it said maybe it's maybe it's like starting with an organ. You know, different pipes are different lengths, like this man has different pipes. You can sing them there. Maybe it's like a recorder. Maybe it's like a flute. But somehow just a a pipe from a reed that you can have. And in verse five, you see the symbols, um, and then you see different sorts of symbols, sounding symbols. You know, there are small symbols, and then there are big symbols. And certainly in verse five, we got the the big crashing. You know, just a big crescendo. So I don't think anyone brought big cymbals today. I didn't hear any big cymbals today. But but these range from percussion instruments to string instruments to um, breath instruments, just all over. And I don't think the point is that we need to, like, have these biblical instruments, you know, what they had in Bible times. I think the point is just we need to have lots of instruments. They did have lots of instruments, and and we we exhibited that in our service today. I'm excited to look at some of the videos because I was looking forward and, and I was really focusing on the music because I played my baritone because I literally have not played that thing since I was 13, <laughs> like, like over 40 years. And uh, so I was playing it last night. I pulled it out. I mean, I've blown it a little bit, but never played music for 40 years. And, and it was, Yvonne was quite impressed. Okay. <laughs> and muscle memory, just to encourage you all. So... Um, but, but, but there's just music we had. There's all types of music. And, and even we see this when the temple was dedicated, the ark was brought into the temple. I think it was maybe a little bit chaotic like our time was. Second Chronicles 6, 11 talks about bringing the ark into the temple after the temple had been built and finally there. And on this day where the procession comes and the ark is going into the, the tabernacle, into the, into the Holy of Holies there. It says when the priest came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to the divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph and Heman and Jeduthun and their sons and their kin and, and their kinsmen arrayed in, arrayed in fine linen. Right? So picture with me a, a marching band in their fine linen with all their instruments coming out with cymbals, harps, lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeteers. So that like makes our, our stuff pale in comparison to what was taking place there. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison, in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised and the trumpets and cymbals and other music and praise to the Lord, they said this, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the God. And so you just picture there, just this loudness coming and this, all these people singing praise to God when the ark finally came in there. And God, I think, showed his pleasure as his presence came down in a cloud. And just what a, what a time that would have been. Now, a cloud didn't come down upon us, but we had a, we had a good and enjoyable time, like our song during our service. But and I, I do think the point is that, that we should be poised with an assortment of musical instruments. Any musical instrument that you have can be used to praise the Lord. Boy, if you can praise the Lord with a tambourine, I think you can praise the Lord with about any instrument. And we should use in our, in our worship, right, an assortment of instruments. Whatever's appropriate for our culture, whatever's appropriate for your skill. Like, we don't want to, I'm not going to be playing the baritone anytime soon, okay, for our worship services, okay, because I'm pretty bad. I missed quite a few notes. But I was close, Right? But if you play an instrument, and if you just say, hey, I just want to be ex- more excellent, and just talk with Ryan, and we'll bring you in as is appropriate, as you won't be distracting. That's what we want to do in our worship, is to be undistracting excellence. So you don't even notice, but we have instruments here, and we are singing to the Lord. 
And all of you are to be involved in the worship because not only does verse 3 tell us how with musical instruments and with with dancing, but also we see in verse 6 who. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay, right? Do it with me now. All right, one more time, in case you missed it the first time. That officially qualifies you as one who can praise the Lord. And I do think at this point that it is the next instrument. It is the finest of instruments, the human voice. There is not an instrument made that is better and more excellent, more beautiful than the human voice. And we all have a voice. And we all can sing. It's the most difficult instrument, certainly, to learn. But let us sing. Right? When we come together, let's, let's sing our hearts out into the Lord. You know, one of the things I love about being a pastor sometimes, I go to pastor's conferences. And really haven't been to one since COVID. But I'm looking forward to it again. I remember being in this pastor's conference. with probably, you know, there were 500 pastors there. And we were in a hotel conference room. And I remember the guy up front said something like that. And it wasn't sensational at all. He says, you know, you're all pastors and you like long for your congregation to sing. Let's sing like you would long for the congregation to sing. And let's sing to our hearts content that the roof might fall off and be exploded from this building with praise. And I love being at pastor's conferences where you have men who are passionate for the Lord. And they come in and they sing with all of their hearts and all of their their, their gusto there with these men and the, the bass and the tenor just singing on out. And it's, it's a representation of what our, our church should be. And I was encouraged. I was talking to someone this week who was newer to the church and just said, you know what, I see that at Rock Valley Bible Church. I see the people there really sing and really praise the Lord well. And so I just I want to commend you in that. I haven't gone through these psalms because I think we're particularly deficient. I just think that it's a, it's a good time for us to take our praise and to take it to another level of desiring and longing to, to be that fireworks finale of praising the Lord when we are in the congregation of His people in the sanctuary. So we come together, let us sing, and let us, let us continue to sing with our, our hearts filled to the Lord. So let's pray together so we have finished here. Father, I thank you for the psalm that tells us where to, where to praise the Lord and why to praise the Lord and how to praise the Lord and who can praise the Lord. It's, it's all of us. Every single one of us that have breath. And if we are here today, we are breathing and we are living and we can sing our, our praise to you. I do thank you for this memorable time we've had with all the instruments. And just think of the children. We'll remember this day for many, many years to come. Some will be on elder boards telling your fellow elders about what we did when I was a little child. We played all these instruments. And some will tell it to other kids in school. And some parents will tell that to their children. And, and Father, just would pray that of all of that, it just helps us to understand the music and the importance of that. And all of us are called to praise. And I would pray for us most of all, Lord, that we would realize why we praise. We don't come here merely because we're a social club or because we want to see friends. God, we come here because of Jesus Christ and what he has done for our souls and pouring out his grace lavishly upon us. And we merely respond, as Ephesians 1 says three times, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's why we sing. 
why we move. That's why we act. That's why we live the way we do is because the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to live righteously. God, it's all about your grace, and that is how we can extend your glory, and that's how we can give you praise and honor. So I just thank you for these psalms and pray that they would sink in deep resonance with all of us, these Alleluia psalms. God, that they would be things that we would go back to and be reminded of to give praise and honor to you, that we would indeed praise the Lord. Amen. And we're going to finish with our doxology.